0: Welcome to the Becoming Educated podcast. I'm Darren Leslie and I'm a teacher. The mission of Becoming Educated is threefold to inform, giving teachers the robust academic basis to really meaningfully interrogate practice, to challenge accepted thinking, dangerous assumptions, and the dead wood entire professional dialogue, and ultimately to inspire and allow passionate professionals to trust in themselves and teach with joy. So in this episode, I am joined by chartered psychologist and a director at Inner Drive, Bradley Bush. Bradley co-authored The Science of Learning, 77 Studies That Every Teacher Needs to Know, and is one of the leading experts on how psychological research can best help students and teachers improve how they think, learn and perform. He has also worked with elite athletes and premiership footballers. Bradley, thank you very much for chatting with me today. Oh, thank you for having me on. No problem. So, um... Before we begin, could you give us a brief synopsis of who you are, uh, what you do and how you came to do the work that you currently do? Uh,
1: yeah, um, so my background was originally in sport. Uh, I'm a sports psychologist um, and I started off working in football uh, with the intention of seeing could we use psychological research to help improve performance. Uh, outside of football, I was lucky enough to be... Uh, part of the support team for athletes for Team GB for London 2012 and Rio 2016 games. And it was really during the latter stages of that, that I kind of, the area that kind of really shifted my focus was on how do we help develop good learners, people who are coachable, people who use good feedback, who don't get too down after setbacks. Um, and so the more research I read, um, the more the research tends to be from educational psychology, Mm-hmm. Uh, and so then my uh, company, which I'm a co-director of, uh, we specialize now in doing CPD and student workshops uh, around how can we help improve edu- education attainment and well-being. Um, so areas such as mindset and revision, and sleep and, and and those sort of areas. Right, so do, do you through, in a drive,
0: do you, do you work with, with schools? Do you work with pri- more than primary, secondary and tertiary education or do you work throughout the whole?
1: Yeah, so we work with about um, 300 different schools and colleges, um, mainly secondary, but an increasing amount of primary. Um, mainly in primary, we tend to do more of the CPD sort of stuff, because um, I think the students are probably a bit too young mm-hmm. um, for the benefit, really. Um, but in secondary, we do a lot of stuff with um, both students and, and staff.
0: Brilliant. Um so can I go on to what we're going to talk about today? I first heard you speak at TEDx TEDxClickManshare, which was based at my school, um, and you started your talk there by saying our biggest weapon is our ability to learn, and that really resonated with me. Could you perhaps elaborate on, on that and your thinking behind saying that?
1: Uh, yeah, sure. Well, uh, I guess I've just got to the stage where when you're trying to work out how, how can I improve, how do I get better, what can I do differently to in a sporting context to what my rivals are doing um and even in an educational sense you know how do i make the most improvement um as undeniably i think that genes have a big role to play and stuff that's you know genetic and in our dna like iq clearly does play a role uh but what i find more interesting isn't so much what plays a role but what do we have the most influence over um and i think for me the biggest thing that we can harness is our ability to learn because when you look at the behaviors that are associated with an increased rate of learning um sort of like how you study how much sleep you get um your ability to motivate yourself like a lot of that none of that's really got anything to do with iq and so therefore anyone can do those sort of behaviors yeah. and so therefore there's a sense of control or influence over these certain things and that's why i think it's the best competitive advantage because Essentially, you can't control for so many factors, but you can control for your ability to learn for the most part. And if we can tap into that, because we've seen so many students who I consider to be quite intelligent, tell us that they don't know how to revise. And on the same basis, we know that some students, if they put in a lot of work and they do good learning strategies, they can make a world of improvement. Uh, And so it's the easiest thing, I think, to target because you have the most control over it. So I suppose, in,
0: when you get to high, the highest level of sport, when everyone has the, the right genetics and and the, and right. the ability, just what separates the, be, the 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 best from the rest, I suppose, is what the all things you spoke about there the their attention to sleep, their attention to detail, their attention to learning. But if we take that back into the, to the classroom, I suppose you can have a variety of children and the the things that you can you can really really promote in your classroom is that like if you. If you work hard on your revision and if you give them the right strategies to learn, to memorise, then I suppose that's going to, if they put the the work in, they're going to separate themselves from the rest.
1: Well, and if anything, it's probably more important in education because if there is such a disparity and you do have such difference in some students' background and intelligence and all these sort of things, then how are you going to help the students who have been dealt a bad hand? Mm -hmm. Uh, And the best thing that they'll be able to do is... Can we help them make sure that they're doing everything that they can uh, to sort of overcome those barriers that have been put in, in there for them? Uh, so I actually think creating good learners is the best way if we're talking about like stuff like social mobility is to actually help people improve because knowledge is power. Mm-hmm. And so then some students get access to knowledge through the benefits of being exposed to lots of stuff, but some students don't. And so then how are they ever going to make up that shortfall if we don't teach them how to learn?
0: Exactly. Exactly. It's definitely something that we that we look into a lot as, as teachers, and especially when children get to the senior phase. So I'm a secondary educator. We get to the senior phase, we find that we get to, for example, this time a year just now when they've got uh, prelims, exams, mock exams coming up, and they perhaps don't know exactly how to revise. It kind of brings us uh, down to your book. I mentioned it in, in the intro, the, the Science of Learning. And the outline that every teacher needs to know Uh, 77 studies in the book why do you think that the need teachers need to know that the 77 studies
1: well I it, it kind of stemmed from a place of when I used to teach in a college um I just got bored of having to guess how people learn and kind of I had hunches around how much homework I was meant to set or what impact various strategies had but I never really knew and so I always just felt I was just cuffing it and guessing mm-hmm. uh and then you kind of realize as you kind of dig into some of the research that like every possible question that you want answering you can bet someone has done a study on it now it doesn't define it give you a definitive answer no, but, but it can give it can give me like a best bet or a guideline and that's kind of what i was after was just like some answers and then you dig into all the components of the science of learning and it covers such a large range. And that was the hardest part was almost filtering it down because you have your stuff around, let's say how much homework to set or how do I motivate bored students or develop resilience. But then on the flip side, uh, on a bigger scale, you've got what's the impact of mixed ability teaching? Uh, What day of the week do students get distracted on? Like all these things all come up and play a part. Um, I'm a big thing on phones at the moment and the impact that has on learning. Mm -hmm. And so there is no one short, neat answer. Um, I think you just have to take every study in isolation I hope they kind of start to paint a picture that can give you an overview of what you think might help or what could work best.
0: Yeah, I think uh, I think for me it's about taking the studies and then applying it to your own context because your own context and then the school down the road could have completely they have their own unique set of circumstances. But I think having the knowledge of the research of the studies and then thinking well, how can that apply to me with with my class that i have on wednesday morning and how can i influence their learning and um, in your book you'd break the research down into seven key categories i think from for me when i'm reading it it, it helps me think well I, I want to know more about that certain area and i can just flick flick to that which makes the book very very good to re- a very good good read very accessible and you can dip in and out of um, Could you tell us what are the seven key categories and why they are key in helping students learn
1: uh yeah sure um so we we came up with when we were like we didn't intend to start with seven categories we kind of just went going through research kind of worked out kind of what's fitted along each side area Um, so the first one i guess is on memory and learning uh which looks at the different strategies either within the classroom or that students can do during independent homework and revision that's going to improve like retention and recall of information um, which we think is quite important, especially now we're seeing less modular exams, kind of the ability to retain large amounts of information is quite important. Uh, the second area is on um, mindset, motivation, resilience. So how do you kind of get people to want to work hard and maintain that work ethic? Um, the next area is probably one of my favourites is on metacognition and self-regulation, which has been getting quite a lot of attention recently of, this kind of look at how do we help people manage their emotions and manage their thought processes so that they're becoming independent learners. Um, then we've kind of got three similar sections of one on student behavior, one on teacher behavior and one on parent behavior, because I think all three combine mm-hmm. um, to impact. And then the last one is slightly more quirky uh, is on thinking biases, which I find personally quite fascinating of what are the, Quirks of the brain that sometimes get in the way of people learning and thinking effectively and clearly. Um, and there's some quite funky research that I think is quite cool. That it's just something quite good to know. Uh, and that's out there,
0: Matt. Yeah, I definitely want to come back to to that research later on. Um, just now, if you were to choose a top three studies for teachers, so if if a teacher is listening to this just now and, and they want to go out and buy your book, what three studies do you think is is most important? for them and why
1: oh uh so and i'm not just saying it because i wrote the book but it's a hard question because (laughs) i generally love well most of the studies in there i think are are fascinating if i had to whittle it down um the most fundamental one which i think we actually put as number one um from the book because that really kind of made us decide to write the book is this concept of so what the researchers did is they looked at the most popular and common ways that students tend to revise and learn mm-hmm. and then they did a summary they did a review of all the studies on those topics to look at what's actually the most effective to what's the least effective um, in terms of the least effective the one the thing that comes out is the two most least effective strategies which is simply just rereading your notes and highlighting key passages those are the two that are probably the most popular with students mm-hmm. so I find that mismatch between what people like and and what's actually best for them quite interesting um and the nice part about that that also as well as looking at the bad it looks at the good um which is around retrieval practice which is generating an answer to a question um spreading out the work so you revisit it regularly um and mixing up the topics within a subject so i think that one on memory is definitely one of my favorites um other favorites uh, there's one study in there on feedback, which I find quite interesting um, because if you look through the, re- the research, they found that just over a third of feedback interventions actually do more harm than good. So what that essentially means is if you just left the students alone for a third of the time, uh, they'd do better than the actual intervention. And yet it's one of the things that's so time consuming uh, is giving feedback to 30 different individual students. Mm-hmm. So I like that study because if the cost is so large in terms of my time, I wanna make sure I'm getting the payoff from it and I need to get the payoff if I know how to give good feedback. And what I quite liked about this study was um, I looked at the different types of feedback you can give and suggested when they'll be most effective or most appropriate. Um, so it's not like saying one type of feedback is better than another, it's about marrying the situation and the, the demands of the student and the task with what type of feedback to give um and then I guess the last one that I probably like um just because I always feel like I'm grumpy when I say this one but I think it, I, I like this is where I'm at now is um they did a good longitudinal study for over five years over lots of different schools on the impact of mobile phones uh mm. and what impact um a mobile phone ban have on student performance um and uh controlling for all other factors uh they found that Schools that ban mobile phones, they looked at their um, there were year 11 students in England, so their GCSE results. Uh, they found that they got, on average, a 7% improvement on their grades just from banning phones. And the two things I find fascinating about that is, one, that's a decent-sized number. Uh, like, it's hard to go up 7%. Uh, so it's, it's a big impact. And we know so many students are addicted to their phones. But then why I really like that study is they digged a little deeper and they looked at which students get the most benefit from this mobile phone ban and they found for struggling and disadvantaged students those students got an average of a 14 percent boost to their grades and so then when you look at those numbers you go well that's then it's quite a moral imperative like this is how we help those who need the most help Mm -hmm. uh and so although you kind of sound really old-fashioned and quite boring when you go um in some respects i'm quite anti-technology and education uh and there are some benefits clearly to education, uh, I, technology, and education. I'd want a lot of benefit if I if I was sacrificing a fourteen percent improvement. Uh, like that's a big number to a struggling that's, group. That is uh, I think in, just
0: thinking. Just just to think the in, in Scotland, we have a massive push for our attainment, our attainment gap, or a perceived attainment gap, where those from the most disadvantaged homes are are Severely behind those from the most advantaged homes, and I think something—if if that's sorry—could be replicated in schools. I think that fourteen percent, the increase in attainment that you can have, is is extraordinary.
1: Well, and everyone always goes to us, um, and I think it got quite popular post like Olympics. This like marginal gains concept of like how can I get one percent improvement, and how can I get my kids better? And I always think before you start getting excited about any of the, like the one percent and marginal gains, let's go for the big wins. That don't cost any money, uh, and banning mobile phones is exactly that. It's a big win, and there's no financial cost. Like you might get a lot of emotional cost in terms of the pushback some students and even parents give, but like I'll take that pushback for 14% on average. Like I'm I'm alright with that trade.
0: Absolutely. If you can then the outcomes for young people. I mean, what what education is all about is about improving yeah. outcomes for young people. And I think if you could, as you say, the 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 cost the offset. You know, I think we can we can all take the, the pushback and the and the emotional yeah. instability for a wee while to then have that end game of in, for the increase of fourteen percent. I think right. that's
1: and you know and you know in some countries that they've now I feel like so in France just last year, they made it illegal across the country for mobile phones in school. Like there's just a nationwide ban. Uh and I'm just curious to see if that's the way it plays out here or if we're so enthralled by electronics and technology that that won't happen but like if i was running a school and i had a blank piece of paper and i could start from scratch i would absolutely have that as one of my first policies without a shadow of a doubt certainly i think that would be
0: backed up backed up by research as well i think there's there's legs to go and i think uh, people listening to that can certainly go back to their schools and go to their head teacher and their senior leaders and say well if we can get the most disadvantaged and increase in 14 percent across the board that is exactly why we should do it and thank you for for sharing that. I mean, all those all those studies, and as you said, all seventy seven studies in your <laughs> book have definitely got things to share. But I think highlighting that three, especially, is, is can generate a lot of a thinking for teachers, especially those that that are listening to the podcast. Um, so for me, I think that that all teachers should have a deep understanding of memory uh, and how to support this with their students, because there's a lot. Very often, you can teach something. And you can set tasks, and then you want to repeat that a couple of weeks later, and you find that the children just haven't retained retained the learning. So, um, what can the research to date tell us about memory? You briefly touched on on the first day in your book earlier on. Can you can you tell us a little bit more?
1: Yeah, uh, and it is an interesting because I was under the impression a few years ago. I always thought memory was something that like you either got a good memory or you don't, and I can kind of get my head around how does someone improve. Their memory, and when you go through all the research, the kind of clear conclusion is how someone is taught something has a big implication for how long they're likely to remember that thing. Um, and so, then you look at what's the research and how do we teach stuff. Uh, the most effective way, and this is over 40 years of research that's been replicated countless times, is this concept of retrieval practice, which is anything that helps you generate an answer to a question means you're more likely to remember that content uh so for example multiple choice quiz um past papers even verbal q a um all those things make you have to generate an answer to a question now the caveat to that is stress is basically the kryptonite of memory uh and when people are too stressed they tend to get very narrow focused and they tend to forget things so you want to do a lot of quizzing and testing but no not in a way that's seen as a formal assessment or judgment because the stress of that would probably negate the benefits of the memory so what the phrase that often gets used is called like low stakes quizzing Mm -hmm. uh, essentially and i think for example how i used to start every lesson i used to start every lesson because i thought this is what you're meant to do uh let me tell you the three learning outcomes or lesson objectives and get everyone to write it down uh Whereas now I start with a quiz on something that we did two weeks ago that I'm not expecting you to really remember all of it. uh, But that's not the point. because I'm not marking it and I'm not judging you. It's that act of you remembering and generating the answer to the question. That's the part that's going to help. Likewise, my summary slides used to always be around. I just take the learning outcomes and change the tense. Instead of saying we were going to learn about this, like we did learn about this. Whereas now I always end on a quiz. Um, would be like kind of my suggestion. So anything that makes people generate answers to a question. uh, And then the other area that I think is probably quite good to know is this concept of spacing, Mm -hmm. uh, which is if you teach topic one, topic two, topic three, topic four, and so on, by the time you get to topic 10 around Easter time, you can all but bet that they have gotten everything from topic one and you have to start it from scratch. And I used to find that really frustrating because... I couldn't get my head around the concept of I've taught you this, but yet you haven't learned it. And the difference between I've taught it and you've learned it, like the two didn't always marry up. And so the concept of spacing is you have to revisit material regularly. Mm -hmm. Um, So we know, for example, in a very crude way of thinking about it, one hour a day for seven days is always going to be better long-term than doing seven hours in one day. Like little and often beats a lot at once. Mm-hmm. always uh and yeah i was really reluctant to do that when i started teaching because i never wanted to have my machines bored i always think you had to do new stuff to generate engagement uh and a that was a big time cost because i was always having to generate new material mm-hmm. uh, and b it wasn't effective because like repetition is really underrated but so important um and so when doing like stuff like big scale stuff like curriculum design I think you have to be aware of how, when are we going to revisit material mm-hmm. and how often are we going to do that so that in 18 months time we'd have to start from scratch again
0: mm-hmm. i think in starting your your lessons with uh with a quiz and the idea of not no lot that i think when I, I think back to when i was at school you would you would do unit one unit two unit three unit four and you were right you you would forget but i like the idea of of that that little and often and i kind of when I when I do it as a teacher I, I um kinda of go down the, the Daniel Coyle talent code route of saying deliberate practice. We're not repeating it, we're doing some deliberate practice here. Um and I and I kinda of, the children seem to, to buy into that. But I think that idea of retrieval practice is definitely something that, that we need to learn more about as teachers and generating that low low stakes quizzes and make it making it low stress. Um can I also ask you about in, in that in your book in that st- that um, first study you talk about, you also about interleaved practice. Could you tell me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so interleaving uh, is similar but different to spacing. So spacing is when you revisit material that you've previously taught, whereas interleaving suggests that you should mix up the topics within your subject. Uh, and the reason you want to do that is by mixing up the topics short-term, it can be a bit confusing and stressful for students, but long-term it helps them make connections because when you think about how we remember and how we categorize information, we don't do it in very neat boxes, mm-hmm. as in like this this lesson and then that lesson. Our memory is much more akin to like, I'd say like a spider web and everything kind of often overlaps and it's messy. And so therefore by mixing up the topics within your subject... You allow students to make the connections between them. So take like, and I'm always reluctant to give specific examples because I'm not a maths teacher, I'm not an English teacher. Mm-hmm. So I think maths and English teachers could come up with better examples than I could for their own subjects. But on a very basic level, if you were teaching about Shakespeare, if you just did one play and then another and then another. It's really hard sometimes to make connections between all three in terms of character development or the use of imagery across all three, because by the time you get to the third one, you've forgotten the first one. So you do need a base period to start with where you just focus on just one thing. But then after a while, mixing it up so that you get that sort of spider web, that cross interaction between them allows people to make connections. And the more connections you make, essentially, the stickier the learning becomes. I like, that. I like that that phrase,
0: the, the stickier the learner becomes and in, in the retention. Thank you. Um, you've also uh, written for the Guardian Teacher Network on the science of teaching and learning, and I had I had a great time reading through back all, all, all your old posts. And you've kind of mentioned it earlier on in terms of the top three studies because one post that really intrigued me was about biases and how they hold learning back. Could you tell us uh, how biases hold learning back, please?
1: yeah um so we could um i guess the interesting thing for me about thinking bias is it works on two different levels you have your student level and you have essentially the staff level uh which would you like me to go for first uh students or staff
0: if you go staff first and then we'll finish with the students
1: okay uh so uh staff one uh the two i think that are worth being aware of uh one is what's known as confirmation bias So classic confirmation bias uh, or it's kind of a version of like outcome bias, which is let's say you have a great set of results this year and that year you've also started, let's say a breakfast club at the school. It's really easy because you believe that that breakfast club is a good idea and it might be, but it's easy if the results are good to say the results are good. Therefore that strategy is good. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas we know there might be many reasons and many factors, uh, just like the quality of the cohort that particular year, for example, um, or a million other different policies that are in place, that drives the difference. So abs not getting too obsessed with the results, because often the result can cloud what was good or bad decision-making in the build-up to it. Um, so I think that's quite an interesting one. The other one that I love, because um, it's really random, is called the IKEA effect. And so, the way the IKEA effect worked, named after the this, um,
0: this manufacturer. Yeah.
1: Um, they did studies and they found that sh- people who made, who self assembled the furniture themselves, uh, valued the furniture higher uh, than someone else who made it for them. And they kind of replicated this with origami as well. Like if you've spent time doing it, you kind of place more value on it than other people, right? And what that means is if senior leaders, for example, have an idea, and it's their idea, uh, it's really hard to kind of sometimes let that idea go and you kind of invest a lot more time and money and effort into it, even if the outcomes aren't going well. Whereas if it was someone else's original idea, you might be easier to kind of cut the ties with it. Uh, So this whole concept of uh, both the IKEA effect and indeed this sort of confirmation outcome biases, how do you know that what you're doing is working? Because if you don't know, you're just guessing. And that's where you get ambiguity and that's when you get error. Um, so, and these are really easy to see in other people. And the kicker is, of course, it's really hard to see it in ourselves. So we can see when other people are suffering these biases, mm-hmm. but no one ever thinks that they suffer from them themselves. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, then, and then the main one for students um, is what's known as the the bandwagon effect, which basically says the bandwagon effect is, for the most part, people want to follow the crowd Like the safety in numbers, this has probably like an evolutionary basis where it's safer to stay as part of the pack than to spotlight yourself and isolate yourself. And so even if you personally have the best work ethic in the world, if you are sitting and doing your work and your homework and your revision amongst loads of other people who have a really bad work ethic, if the norm within your classroom or your library or study area is to not work very hard, it's really easy to, for you to get swept up into that. Uh, like People tend to follow the crowd. This is why this is why people behave very differently at football than they do in the library, because the crowd is all acting different. The expectation of what's acceptable has changed. And so they've done some... And this can hinder learning for students, because basically you pick up other people's habits and traits. Mm-hmm. So that uh,
0: in, a, in a classroom of 30 children, the background yeah. effect could take, take place that you could have someone who maybe is if they, if they were to work hard could fly ahead of the group but because of that effect they're going to just sit around the average.
1: Potentially but they've also done it in reverse and this is why it's quite important is they've done a sort of fair bit of research around uh, if I take a student and sit him next to someone who's working really hard even if they're working on a different task uh, that original student tends to work harder um this is i think it's known as like the Ziegler uh, is it the, yeah, it the effect um but basically um in a relay to take a sporting example uh the slowest member of a relay tends to run faster if they're part of the relay team than they do by themselves because other people drag them up and that has implications for like seating plans or group work like if you can take a struggling student in terms of work ethic and place them with two people who do work harder Mm -hmm. chances are because of the bandwagon effect that one student is going to raise their game as opposed to it lowering the performance of the other two Uh, so we can use the bandwagon effect for positive if you can help create a culture where working hard is important and being successful is cool then it becomes self-policing and then the students will naturally work harder because there'll be like a ripple effect uh and that's what makes this stuff i think so interesting so either the key to that is either you get the numbers on your side or you identify who are the key influencers are and get them on your side uh because then they'll spread the message and then once the message is spread you'll have the numbers
0: that's brilliant i uh, just just on that i, I recently read uh, damien hughes book about unlocking the dna of barcelona well. yeah hey, i've read that so he's a good <laughs> and in that they talk about cultural architects and and yeah, those right. are my those are my colleagues i talk about them all the, all the time and I, and I tell the children that they're my lionel message to get them on <laughs> so that they can so i celebrate i celebrate what they do to to try and bring the rest so i suppose that kind of kind of is a bit of a use of the the bandwagon effect oh, without, without me knowing about that and um, can i you can i mention before there but something every teacher wants to create in their classrooms, you and you and your group of 30 children, is a high-challenge, high-support environment. And you spoke about that in, in your TEDx talk. Um, how do we, as teachers, get a, a classroom which has high-challenge but also high-support? Because you spoke earlier about low-stakes, but we want the children to be challenged. Can you tell me more about that?
1: Yeah, so um, that concept of high-challenge and high-support... Um, comes from there was a research paper that came out a year or two ago um and these guys the two authors are i'd consider to be the leading experts on resilience research in, like in the country and they had many tips in their paper but one of them was this concept of having high challenge and high support and essentially they suggest that you need both to help develop resilience um so how do we develop high challenge and high support well i think there's a lot of other research out there that talks about the power of high expectations um so essentially um it's known as the pygmalion effects named after like greek mythology and pygmalion was a sculptor who had such high love and expectations for his sculpture it kind of turned into a real person but they've been studying this for education in over 50 years and they found teachers who have high expectations for their students those students are more likely to meet those expectations uh because essentially they take the cue from the adult in the room and this is especially true and powerful at the start of a task before they've got a chance to start doubting themselves if someone else goes i know you'll be able to do this it'll be hard but i know you'll be able to do this and also i think at the start of the year when people kind of tend to be quite uh, enthused um the phrase that often gets said a lot in psychology is um uh, no one rises to low expectations essentially uh, essentially and if we're talking about struggling or disadvantaged students there will be some students out there whose parents Might not have as high a value of education as we'd like, might not have the highest expectations of what their child can achieve in education. Uh, And that, for me, makes this stuff even more important because if they don't hear it from the school and within the classroom. They might not hear it elsewhere, whereas other students might be lucky enough that when they go home, they do hear that. Uh, so that makes the classroom environment I think so important so you've got to have this concept of high expectations Uh, what does high expectations look like Uh, I think believing that everyone can improve uh, knowing that everyone can learn and get better Uh, part of it I think is starting with a fresh slate each day to an extent of I'm not gonna hold too much previous stuff against you today I'm gonna help you get better and I'm gonna invest in you Uh, because I believe you can improve. I'd also probably go expecting every child to be able to contribute to the lesson because we see it all too often, and I was probably just as guilty of it as anyone, of, you know, if you stay quiet long enough, it's kind of like a game of chicken with the teacher. Either they'll move on or give the answer or someone else will put their hand up. And therefore that just gives you a reason not to have to think too hard in the lesson. Uh, Whereas if there's this culture of, everyone participates, everyone learns, we're going to value each minute of learning, then I think the students get wrapped up in that and they go along with it because that's the culture and that's the norm of that high expectation.
0: I like that, that idea of, of every single minute is a prisoner in your classroom and, and everybody's contributing and we, we talk a, a lot about that, and especially in, in our school and in I think everyone talks about education how do you get everyone to contribute and and contribute to that culture and I think I totally agree with that idea of having high expectations but I think a lot of people might struggle with how do they articulate that how do
1: they get those high expectations um, right but I think for me part of that is you have to be as you get old maybe it's easier as you get older um but like when I started I used to hate awkward silences and I used to be so supportive of my students that i'd never want anyone to be uncomfortable in my lesson whereas now now i'm a bit more relaxed about that because i know if i'm going to help stretch you and help you develop there will sometimes be a bit of internal conflict and there will sometimes be awkwardness um my wife and I, we have this huge debate. She's a child psychologist, right? So I tend to work more about like performance and she tends to do more of like of the nurturing um, child psychology. And so we have this debate of, let's say you have a child who doesn't like reading uh, and they don't like reading out loud. And the question is, do you let them do other stuff uh, so that way they can still participate in the lesson? Uh, and that's good that you've got that engagement and participation. Or if anything, should they probably be doing more Of the reading because that's the only way they're going to get better Uh, and I'm getting more comfortable about going more to the latter of the only way you're going to get better and I believe that everyone can get better is if you practice whereas if I stop you from doing those sort of things with good intentions what I'm really saying is my expectations are lower for you and that I believe that you might not be able to get this so we'll just let you do other stuff that you're more comfortable with but if I do value participating and reading and whatever the tasks are public speaking is interesting one that a lot of students get really stressed about uh i'm not going to lower my expectations and then say it's okay that you're just not good at this or you don't think you can get better at this my high expectations mean i'm going to help you improve and with that comes conflict and awkwardness but it's a price worth paying Mm -hmm.
0: is that that offset of again if i want to improve your outcomes for you we need to maybe make you a little bit uncomfortable. We need to challenge you and make you overcome your fears within a classroom. But as you, that high support, you're gonna do that in a, in a safe, structured manner where the, that fear of failure is, is dissipated. So we've spoke a little bit about that, but what
1: do you think are the biggest barriers to, to creating that culture? Um, well, I, so kind of partly what I was mentioning there of like this low expectations, The technical phrase, which uh, I came across fairly recently, which I think is just brilliant, uh, apparently it's actually referred to as the golem effect, which is if you have low expectations, people tend to meet the low expectations. Uh, So I think that is a big barrier. Uh, Another barrier, and I have quite a lot of sympathy for this barrier in terms of, I think one of the barriers is time and energy uh, because it's a really hard gig teaching because the hours are long, the emotional investment is high, and it's really hard to be a driving force if you're tired you're stressed you're demotivated um and so what you tend to see if you look both at the research and also just anecdotally i think the best institutions are the ones that really look after and support their teachers because that then removes that barrier it kind of frees them up to do the job they want to do in a way that they want to do it as well um And the more you can value, I think, your staff with, and that includes giving them high CPD, allows time for self-reflection, a fair bit of autonomy. Um, I think that actually removes the barrier because most people get into this profession because they have high expectations of they want to help the next generation get better. So it frees them up to do that.
0: No, I'd I'd wholeheartedly agree. I think the the biggest resource we have and not only in education but the entire world is, is is human beings and that interaction between human beings is important I think if I think every teacher in, in the world would can talk to you about um, the stresses of the job and the challenges of the job but if you are supported I I, I for one feel incredibly supported in, in my team in my school and that's allowing me to to try and be the best that I can be every single day for for the young people and after all that's exactly what I want to be. Um, thank you very much, uh, Bradley. I'm, we've come to the end of, of that that section of my podcast, and I have some three final questions that I, I'd like to ask everybody that comes on my podcast. If you'd be up for answering them, sure. Um, well, my first one is: What book or text has had the the biggest impact on you and your career?
1: Um, I yeah, so I again it's a cop out i'm gonna go for two if that's all right can i can i sneak two in yes of course. go for it. Uh, amazing so the first one uh it was the first psych book i read at university that wasn't on like the reading list that wasn't like required uh, for the course so it's a book called learned optimism uh and it's basically by one of the leading researchers in psychology and it was about how do you help develop how people explain failure and even how they attribute success and what impact that has on motivation uh so i thought that was just an awesome book that i always recommend and the other one um because that kind of started me on my career but the one of more recently uh there's a book by uh an ex-teacher uh she's na- her name's lucy crean uh the book's called cleverlands yes uh, i think that might be the best book written about education personally uh so she went around 12 different countries and taught in each one for a month to see what do they do and then related not only the her experience but looked at all the research behind it um and i just think it's fascinating and undeniably made me a better educator and i think would make everyone a better teacher um so the, those two would probably be uh, the two I'd, I'd plump for
0: perfect thank you i i'd, I'd agree i've also learned Uh, read clever lands and it is did you like it 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 is a really excellent excellent book and it's one of my one of my top five that i've read in education and uh, i love i love reading around education so it it definitely stood out for me
1: um if you could give one bit of advice to a teacher what would that be Um, well usually i'd say never lower expectations but i feel like i've probably beat that drum to death enough uh uh on, on this podcast um Other advice I'd be, um, I'm going to steal someone else's. Someone once told me that it was important to remember that I'm the adult in the room uh, in terms of like, I set the tone uh, and I set the culture uh, and it comes from the top. And so if my presentations and my work is of low quality or if I'm bad at timekeeping, it's really hard for me to then convince other people, my students, to do that. So always remembering that kind of it starts from the top, I set the tone uh, and I've got to look at myself first um, as opposed to kind of looking at others in terms of when things don't go wrong kind of cause it, it starts from you uh, I think it was quite a nice nugget that I stole from someone
0: Brilliant thank you very much it's something that I'm really interested in I'm doing a, a little bit of research around because I think um, every teacher in every lesson could, could genuinely be outstanding but I think there's a lot of things that get in the way um, what do you think gets in the way of great teaching
1: or even great learning um well i think one of the biggest barriers is um is guessing um because that that was my biggest barrier is i was always just having to guess what would work and what, what, what might be a good idea um so now i think the more research you know um it doesn't have to dictate your teaching but it should guide it um and so the more you read around education, I'm just convinced uh, the better you become. Um, But the big barrier to that I think is often time. Um, So I think the two probably go hand in hand. If you can free up time and spend it reading and reviewing the research, it sets you on the path of great teaching and learning. That's
0: brilliant. Thank you very much, uh, Bradley for coming on the podcast and you've said a, a lot of absolutely brilliant stuff and, I think um, the listeners will, will really be able to take a lot away from it so just just before you go i'd really like to to thank you for for sharing today sharing some of your work and i'd definitely encourage uh, all teachers to, to buy your book uh,
1: the science of learning could you tell tell them where they could find it oh yeah this is part why i get to a nice little plug uh, <laughs> yes of course <laughs> uh, yeah so the science of learning uh, it's on amazon um and it's uh, available also on our website which is innerdrive.co.uk and fortunately our lovely publishers have told us that for schools who want to bulk buy for members of their staff we can offer quite a nice discount um so if anyone's interested in that get in touch and we should be able to sort out a discount
0: no brilliant i'm i'm sure that they certainly will after after listening to listening to you today um thank you very much for your time and I hope you have a lovely evening and um, I hope to also chat with you again in the future because it's 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 been incredibly valuable for me and my own learning and hopefully it will
1: be the same for the listeners ah absolute pleasure mate really enjoyed it thank you for having me on
0: thank you very much for listening to the podcast today I really do appreciate it if you want to find out more about what was discussed today please head over to my website becomingeducated.co.uk And finally, if you haven't done so already, I would really love it if you were to subscribe to the podcast. That way, all future episodes will be downloaded directly into your feed. And before you go, please always remember to teach with joy.